In church, my fear is that we use words that never sink in. We can even define them and in our spirits even yawn as they are being defined. Grace, what we get that we don't deserve. Mercy, what keeps us from what we do deserve. Full stop. Grace. Mercy. God in Christ has shared his grace and mercy. They are life-changing commodities from heaven. The, The passage before us this morning from Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 32 asks us whether these notions have ever gripped our hearts with life-altering reality. For the believer in Christ, hell, just punishment for our sin against a God who is holy and right and separate. Hell will not be our eternal home because of God's mercy. Remember, mercy keeps us from what we in fact deserve. That draws me to Jesus, the embodiment of mercy and grace. Remember, wasn't it John who said what we get in Jesus is grace upon grace. The old gospel hymn had it right all along. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save We are as blessed as we are undeserving of God's grace and his mercy. I need God's mercy. Are you the only person without a need for God's mercy? It cannot be. We are all desperate for it. Mercy showed up in Bethlehem, and as Jeremiah said in Lamentations chapter 3, it's new in portion every morning. I love that about our Lord. Our question this morning then is, are we standing up to live on top of these daily mercies brought to us by the living God? This morning, I want to read this passage to you. We are going through the letter to the Romans. We're just finishing a three-chapter segment that talks about a specific question that was raised in the first century. Wait a minute, I thought God made a promise to Abraham and through him the whole world was going to be blessed and these promises, and he attaches the word forever to them in Genesis 12, would mean that the people of God, Israel, would mediate the knowledge of God to everyone who would believe. Jesus comes, the promised Messiah, issuing from the line of David, out of the seed of Abraham, and the Jewish nation substantially rejects him. What's going on? What happened? In fact, the Gentiles, perceived by Jewish people in the first century to be the godless, uh, the pagans, why from among the Gentiles were a number of people who came to place their faith in Jesus. 
And so questions were being asked that Paul answers in Romans 9 and 10 and 11. We are at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, Romans eleven twenty-five. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. That is, as it is written, here's the quote from Isaiah 59, which was read, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they, Israel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, think Abraham. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Hear the word of the Lord. I want to go two different directions. First, here is Paul who's going to have a big reveal. That's what he says in verse 25. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. So he is going to reveal something not known up until Romans eleven twenty-five, And God moves him to write it and reveal it. But secondly, I want us to celebrate God's mercy and watch how God uses his mercy to move our hearts to be responsive to him. And so that leads inexorably to the question, has God's mercy moved our hearts to respond? and be responsive to Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's our plan of attack. Number one, God is working out a glorious mystery heretofore unknown. That's what he says in verse 25. I don't want you to be in the dark. I don't want you to be unaware of the mystery. Now, when we see the word mystery, uh, English readers look at that term and they say, oh, that's Agatha Christie. Oh, I I get mystery. Uh, Don't think Agatha Christie when you read the word mystery in the New Testament. The, The notion of this word mystery is something that is going to be made known and revealed that up till now has not been revealed. So Paul's going to explain what's going on with the Jewish nation saying no to Jesus when he was presented. That's what's in the mix here. And Paul's going to unveil it as if it was some sculptor and had a white sheet over it and they pulled it off at the time and people clapped and they saw it for the first time. Here is Paul bringing us to this mystery. Now, we need to think in three different directions as it relates to this mystery. First, he is saying and affirming this simple reality, which throbs through Romans 9, 10, and 11, 
there is a future for Israel. Look at verse 26. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. What's going on right now? A partial hardening has come until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then the hardening is going to be lifted and there will be in its place a responsive heart to Jesus Christ. Now, the great interpretive question for 1126 is, who is Israel? Now, it is true in Galatians 6.16, Paul, using another analogy of what is true, the unity of the people of God, Old Testament, New Testament, believers in the promise of God. The people of God have always been delivered. They've always been saved through the same means, faith in the promise. In the Old Testament, Israel looking forward to the promised Messiah. In the New Testament, the people from every tongue and tribe and nation who believed in Jesus had faith in God's promise embodied and realized in the person of Jesus Christ. It is true that Paul calls the church the Israel of God. But in chapter 9 and in chapter 10 and in chapter 11, in this very involved discussion that we finish today before we get to this glorious doxology, which if God lets us get there, we'll be there next week. I can't wait. It's wonderful how 11 ends. We'll celebrate it next week, God willing. But as we come to 9, 10, and 11, he is talking about when he uses the term Israel, he is drawing a distinction between Israel, Jewish people, and Gentiles, non-Jewish people. In fact, he says in verse 13, as an example of this distinction between these two groups, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. And he says, I'm addressing you specifically now. And he talks about my fellow Jews, verse 14. So there's a distinction between the Gentiles and the Jews. That distinction shows up in 11.11, 11.13, 11.25. 11.25, he talks about the fullness of the Gentiles. That there is a season, a period of time in which God is at work among the nations, among the Gentile, non-Jewish people. And in this period of time, he is drawing men and women to himself from every tongue and tribe and nation. You get to verse 26. He says, all Israel will be saved. Hold your thoughts on all in a moment. But he's oscillating between the Gentile period and a yet future Israel period when deliverance will be brought by our Lord through Jesus Christ. Now, John Murray, one commentator, said about this allusion to Israel in 1126, it is exegetically impossible to give to Israel in this verse any other designation than that which belonged to the term throughout the chapter. The themes of Romans 9, 10, and 11 make no sense apart from allusions to Israel or allusions to Abraham's children. Now, in saying that, I am not saying that the heirs of Abraham's children today 
are the modern nation of Israel, and, and, and therefore we should bless everything that Israel ever does, uh, including to Palestinian followers of Jesus Christ, uh, uh, and carte blanche, we give them a pass on everything. I'm not saying that. Uh, I, I am saying that the promises to Abraham cast a shadow that continues into our day and will continue to the consummation of all things when God brings all things together. So uh, the text lists grounds for hope for Israel. Look at verse 28 and 29. Number one, verse 28 is divine election. Why would there be any future of Israel? Well, it can be captured in two words. Their forefathers, that is, Abraham, Isaac, the promises to Abraham are repeated. Jacob, the promises to Abraham are repeated to the grandson. You have the patriarchs, the promises to them, which he alludes to ethnic Israel's promise to the forefathers in verse 28. And then he says in verse 29 something glorious. So it's not only divine election that is grounds for hope for a future for Israel as regards to Gentiles. You got in because God hardened their hearts. As regards to them, they are going to be awakened even through your responsive hearts to Christ, Gentile world. Now, divine election is there, also God's mercy. This is the theme of the passage, verse 30, verse 31, verse 32. Those grounds are the only reason, by the way, anyone is saved, God's electing grace and his divine mercy. So the stage is set in this mystery now revealed. Stage one, Israel is hardened, verse 25. Uh, Stage two, a full complement of Gentiles come in. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Stage three, all of Israel will be saved. Yes, Romans 9, 10, 11 anticipates a Jewish turn to Jesus. Indeed, a future for Israel. Now, the second direction is this. God made a covenant with Abraham and he keeps his promises. I love verse 29. For the gifts... Look at it with me. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. I love that word. They cannot be withdrawn. Once they are levied, they are fixed. They are sure. They are sure, certain. God is not capricious. He doesn't turn back on his promises. He doesn't say one thing one day and act contrary to what he has said in another day. Justice Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court has stirred up jurisprudence in America related to treaties that the federal government historically made with Indian peoples in America. Deals were cut Treaties were made, language was forged in these treaties, and time and time again, uh, the federal government broke the promises that were made. 
So now a few cases are worming their way to the Supreme Court. Two in particular have come. And he set jurisprudence, and in particular, jurisdictional authority in Oklahoma, for example, on its ear. Um, Nobody can hardly figure out who has arresting powers and holding powers for those who break the law now. Uh, It's it's a little bit of a a, a hot mess in parts of uh, Oklahoma around the reservations now. But what he has said is this. If the promise was made, the promise is to be kept. And so he reads the language of the promise. Now, that's a page out of God's playbook. Indeed, he is a promise keeper. The promises that he makes, he does not turn his back on them. My great-grandfather bought a famous shotgun make, maybe some of you have it, a Winchester 97 12-gauge shotgun. I remember it as a 32-inch barrel with a full choke, and I remember when I would shoot out, uh, Dad would knock down the pheasants, what seemed like to me 100 yards from where he was standing, as he giggled at my attempts to knock them out of the air. I could never hit him any good. And, um, but he, he, would, he was really, a, a, a really good with that gun. And my great-grandfather, Andrew Jackson Mounts, bought that gun. It came out in 1897, called the Winchester 97. He gave it to my grandfather, and he said when he gave it to him, his name Jack, my grandfather's name Jack, when you finish with this gun, you give it to your son, Jack. And then uh, when Grandpa gave it to my dad, he said, when you're finished with it, you give it to Eric. And then, of course, when I was finished with it, I was to give it to Caleb, who was in possession of that gun yet today. But along the way, something really hateful happened, and it, it, it's, it's a tragic story. My grandfather, uh, through indulgence, right as he was coming up on 70 years old, his life got super off track. And um, one of the things he did in the midst of the super off track moment was he came to my dad and he said, Jack, I want you to give me that shotgun back. Now, uh, my dad was very close to his dad as I was to my own. And this was a... uh, a hurtful mess on so many grounds. This was just another footnote on the whole thing. But my dad said, now listen, dad, I want you to remember what your dad told you to do with that gun. And you have done exactly what he had told you to do. And I'm going to do exactly what you told me to do. And I'm going to give it to Eric. And I'm not going to give you back that gun. I'm really glad that he did that. And and Caleb has the gun today. But it, it, it was so hurtful. If you levy a promise, I promise to do that, and then back away from the promise, or the the former word is renege. It's a word that has a Latin derivative, and it's a word that means go back on, deny, renounce, abandon. Here's what Paul says out loud, and it's something glorious. Take this home. Don't forget this. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Whatever that hateful, hard thing that Grandpa asked of Dad, whatever tragic ways that we have treated 
the American Indians with these treaties that we broke time and again, God doesn't do that. In fact, he has integrity to keep his promises. So we can live this week and we can count on, when we can't count on too many other things, the integrity of what God has promised. You say, Eric, I am holding on just barely, just barely to the promise of God. That's all you need. And it's not your great grip that's going to sustain you. It's God's integrity to keep his promise that sustains us. And nothing about that will ever change. I love that about God. I love that. Now, the third direction we need to think in is there is mercy yet coming. Look at verse 31. It's interesting. So they too have now been disobedient. Remember, in this time of hardening, they're now disobedient. In order that by the mercy shown to you, remember the jealousy concept that he's been discussing, they also may now receive mercy. There is a time in the future in which mercy is going to break out for them. A spectacular, unforeseen turn is before Israel. Yes, a Jewish turning to Christ. They also may now receive mercy. This is the equivalent of a miracle like Paul on Damascus Road. Now, I think sports betting is coming online in Kentucky here before too long. And, um, you know, now there, there's, you know, FanDuel and there, there's all these platforms on which you can gamble. You know, you can gamble on every pitch and every batter and every inning and the whole nine yards. I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, but um, it's, it's out there. Nobody would have bet on the Apostle Paul coming to confess Jesus Christ as his Savior. In fact, he was out persecuting the church, putting people, beating them up, putting them in jail. He came a follow, became a follower of Jesus Christ. Nobody would bet on Israel looking on whom they have pierced and owning Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Nobody would bet on that. But it is exactly what is promised and anticipated in the future. What a remarkable reveal. God isn't finished with Israel. She yet will have a future day. Now we must deal with the term all. Look at verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Verse 32, mercy will come to all. Now we know that Jesus said, Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there be that find it. Jesus did not leave us with the notion of universalism, that everyone who has ever lived will be saved. Now, universally, everyone is a sinner. And here's the glory of the announcement about Jesus. Universally, everybody is invited to Jesus. Everybody whosoever will may come. It's a universal invitation. But you and I know that not everybody receives the invitation and comes to place their faith in Jesus Christ and comes to be a follower of Jesus. So when he's using the term all, he's using it as a reference to the class of Israel, to the body of the nation. F.F. Bruce's comments are helpful here. When he says, all Israel, that phrase is a recurring expression in Jewish literature where it need not mean every Jew without exception, but Israel as a whole. All as in a blanket whole as a nation, not each and every individual who is Jewish. 
who has lived. Now, what is anticipated is a spontaneous turn as Abraham's family to a responsive heart to our Lord. Here's a picture of Nilav, our partner in Calcutta, India. And two pictures down, along with a few other pictures, there's a mom and a dad and two sons who suddenly, all together, realized their need for Christ and came to place their faith in Christ and joyfully bore witness of their faith in Christ through baptism, along with 24 other people recently at their church in Calcutta. And George Collins, our global partner, wanted to send us that picture And I thought of this family, who this family, unconscious and unresponsive at one point, but suddenly, now fast forward, God has worked in their lives, opened their hearts, and they're at a completely different place. The same will be said of Israel. That's his point here. Now, before we leave, let's talk about mercy. It is God's mercy that moves us to respond to Jesus. What makes, what made those mom and dad and two sons what makes us turn to jesus it's mercy remember paul's already and we discussed it weeks ago romans 2 4 it is the kindness of god that leads us to repentance when we start getting our minds wrapped around this concept of mercy you mean mercy keeps us from what we do deserve in just punishment and banishment from god Mercy swallows that up and gives us a future and a hope and the gift of something that we even do not deserve in grace, even while it keeps us from what we do deserve, that is, just punishment because of our arrogance and insensitivity, lack of fear of God in our sin. Now here Paul discusses what moves people's heart. And let's think of three parts in his summary. Number one, there will be a limited number of people who are saved. Now, we've already talked about this at some level, looking at that concept all, but let's consider this sober reality. There's a finite number of people who will be saved. Look at verse 25. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Here's the phrase, until the fullness of the Gentiles, which means there's a finite number of Gentiles who are gonna come to place their faith in Christ. And someday that number will be filled out and fulfill the purpose of God. And then the hardening will be over for Israel and their responsive hearts will break out and it'll be a time when there is a Jewish response to Jesus that is substantial. Now that does two things to us. Number one, if you're here this morning and you ever received Jesus Christ as your Savior, Gratitude wells up in your heart to realize, though it is a finite number, God in his mercy and by his grace has numbered us in that group. And that fills you with joy as you meet for worship and have the opportunity to say these lyrics unto our Lord and to celebrate, ascribe worth to him. It leads to a grateful heart that stimulates joy because you know even if you face the brunt edge of the brokenness of this world, God has brought you into that finite number and you belong to him. You are his and he takes care of his own. You are his daughter. You are his son. If you know Jesus Christ as your savior and there's, there's no glory like that. 
The second way that that has an effect upon us is it real, you realize, hey, if there's only a finite number of people who are going to come in, and I only have a finite number of days to live, I better get on with the effort while I live of encouraging people to come to follow Jesus. And we are a means that God uses to transmit this glorious announcement. And it's still worth it this morning. The good news of great joy for all people is a Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. And this Savior is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this Savior embodies our hope that on that first Easter morning was raised from the dead. His tomb is empty and we can have hope while we live and hope in our death. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Has God brought you here this morning to open your heart to trust in Jesus? There will be a limited number of people who are saved. Secondly, Jesus Christ delivers us and takes away our sin. This is the quote from Isaiah 59. Look at verses 26 and 27. Paul chronicles three steps. The deliverer comes, step one. Godliness is turned away, step two. You say, Eric, how could I ever give up my sin? These sinful habits that plague me. What happens is Jesus Christ releases us from the bondage of our sin. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. The third thing is the deliverer brings his people to repentance and so forgiveness according to the covenant promise. And this will be my covenant with them. Think of the new covenant promise in my blood, Jeremiah 31, the blessing of Abraham's children. When I take away their sins. John Stott said this, disobedience is likened to a dungeon in which God has incarcerated all human beings so that they have no possibility of escape except as God's mercy. And God's mercy has brought about great possibilities that before his mercy came embodied in Jesus, we did not have. John Wesley captures this release so well in the lyrics to his hymn, And Can It Be? Mine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I woke, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, has died for me. What's he talking about? He's talking about Isaiah 59, 20, and 21. He's talking about Isaiah 11, 26, and 27. Are you hanging out in the dungeon today? Or has God, through his mercy, given you a new day? Finally, God delights in being merciful. Who is God? Who is the God of the Bible? He is a God who takes delight. What does he delight in? He delights in showing mercy. Look at verse 30, 31, and 32. The God of the Bible is full of mercies. Lamentations 3.22, his mercies never come to an end. Think of that language. Never come to an end. Everything we know of runs out. Not the mercy of God. Fresh this morning. 
You know what I need this morning from God? I need his mercy. And that's what we get in fresh, supple proportion. Look at Calvary. That's exhibit A of God's mercy. Jesus Christ embodies God's mercy to us. What do you delight in? What do we delight in? God delights in mercy. R.A. Torrey was the head of Moody Bible Institute around the turn of the century, 1900. He was leading the school and he had a friend whose son was a rascal and who had no interest in God and godly things. And the father was deeply concerned about him and he went to R.A. Torrey and he, he had an idea. He said, hey, Tory, why don't you take my son into the student body at Moody Bible Institute? He said, now, you know what kind of school this is. This is a Bible school. You've told me about your son. Well, after some conversation, under a special provision that he had to spend a lot of time with R.A. Torrey, William Newell came to the student body at Moody Bible Institute. And the needle began to move. It moved and it swung from disinterest and antagonism to a softening. It went from hardness against to inquiry in to a wonderful embrace. And he wrote about it in a poem that he wrote that we used to sing. And he talked about that what changed the calculus for him was the experience of God's mercy in receiving Jesus Christ and pondering the cross. In his poem, he said it like this. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. He came to Christ. He would go on to join the faculty and have a long tenure that was influential and wrote commentaries. William Newell never recovered from the mercy of God, nor ought we. It yet should move us today. Father, thank you for Jesus, our Lord. Deliver us from insensitivity to him. Thank you for your mercies. It is because of your mercies that we are not consumed. Thank you that your grace and supple portion is available in Christ every day. And your mercy coming new to us to help along this good way as your follower. Oh God, may the power of the gospel Mark our lives and our hearts, our disposition and our attitudes, and may it mark our hearts with gratitude in full measure. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, let's sing.